So in the Oval Office, there was this rug, uh, oval, oval-shaped rug, and around the outside of it is inscribed saying, it's often credited to Martin Luther King, there's some dispute about that, but we'll, we'll say it's from him. It says, the long arc of history bends towards justice. And then and President Obama would remind us verbally, not without our work. It doesn't happen accidentally, it happens with our work. That's what I take about AI. You know, AI can either be, it can be that utopia that we dream of, and it can certainly be the dystopia of Hollywood's imagination, but it's with our involvement that we as a society determine where on that spectrum this life-saving technology finds its expression. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you're here from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. When Eric Daimler was just a young professional in the mid-1990s, he managed to land a pair of job interviews with two very different companies and was lucky enough to receive offers from both. The job he accepted was with a venture capital firm that would end up exposing him to the capabilities of artificial intelligence. The offer he turned down was an early-stage startup. He interviewed with the founder, and he liked what he heard, but he decided he wanted to try his luck in Silicon Valley rather than his native Seattle, where the startup was based. The startup founder's name was Jeff Bezos, and Eric had to tell him that he wouldn't be joining his scrappy online bookstore. Had he chosen differently, Eric would have been Amazon employee number 74. Eric is my guest today, and for pretty much all of us, it's a good thing he passed on Amazon all those years ago. In the years since, he's become an influential thought leader in the area of artificial intelligence and robotics. He's an entrepreneur with six AI-related startups under his belt. He's an investor who has funded numerous startups. And in 2016, he became a policy advisor to the Barack Obama administration, helping to guide an agenda designed to put the U.S. at the leading edge of AI research development and adoption. Had he accepted that job with Amazon, well, it certainly would have changed his life. But thanks to that one small decision early in his career, he ended up helping to change all of our lives for the better. Eric was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, in the era just before it became an important tech hub. Eric Seattle was an aerospace and logging town, still considered one of the West Coast's second cities. But his father was right in the thick of Seattle's economic engine, working as an engineer at Boeing. Eric naturally gravitated towards science and technology. But like many of the guests we have on this show, he was more interested in doing 
and he was in learning. I was really one of those people that grew up in a basement with computers. If you went down to our basement, you would have seen a lot of different pieces of electronics and a drum set. That's that's what I had. I spent way too much time in a windowless room. Uh, uh, so the weather in Seattle didn't really matter, but that's what I spent a lot of time doing. I was a good athlete at the time when I was young, but really most of the time was in computers. And my aspiration was Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mitch Kapoor. Those were actually three faces I literally had in my high school locker room or locker door. That was, Those were my, uh, my heroes. That was your future business plan right there, right? Yeah. So what you, you're an athlete. What was your sport? Cycling. I did velodrome. Oh, I did too. Really? I was uh, trying to be in the Olympics. Wow. No, I didn't do that. But no, I did velodrome track racing here in California and and uh, road racing. I did some like the Tour of Idaho and some of those bigger, longer ones. But my father was a cyclist from the UK. And so then that became my sport. <laughs> oh, wow. It's fun. You still do it? I don't. Are you still an avid cyclist? I quit when I went to college. Just stopped cold turkey. Yeah. And that was a bad idea probably for both of us to do that, but <laughs> that's pretty cool. And so what about siblings? So you're in this basement all alone or you have siblings that were hanging out with you doing these? I have three wonderful siblings are all older doing their own thing. So I certainly had a brother as an engineer that provided a, a degree of modeling of what the future could hold as being a an engineer. And I wanted to do what he did, although he's a different type of engineer. And he, he became an Eagle Scout. I wanted to become an Eagle Scout. So that's how that worked out. Cool. So what were you like in school? What kind of student were you? I was, I guess, entrepreneurial at an early age. I didn't care for my school at all. So I uh, took responsibility for that. And I wouldn't have used the language like that. And it, I sound terribly precocious reflecting back on what it was like for me. But I remember as my Boy Scout Eagle project trying to bring a bus system out to our subdivision. I was in the suburbs. One of the terrific parts about the project for being an Eagle Scout is you don't do it yourself. You have to enroll other people in doing it. So as a 13, 14-year-old, you have to enroll other kids in helping you implement a project. Mine was getting enough neighborhood support evidenced by surveys and, and community gatherings to justify the municipal or countywide transportation system to put in a line out to our subdivision. My whole motivation, you know, might have been just altruistic, but it was really quite selfish. I wanted to take a bus at 14 down to the University of Washington to take classes and get the heck out of my high school. That's, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did. So I, I got the bus system implemented, and the, the next month, I think, or, you know, I was down taking classes at the university, and I skipped out of the last couple of years of most of my high school and, and completed those courses at the University of Washington, Seattle. Wow. I mean, it was your first entree into politics, too, right? <laughs> I suppose. But you didn't know. I suppose. Door-to-door, community organizer, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that was going to be a gateway. So you finished high school early, and so you took your courses at University of Washington, and then went off to Carnegie. Yeah, yeah. Then I was looking at my, my best friends, and we really had three schools under consideration, MIT, Stanford, and Carnegie Mellon. One of them went to the Air Force Academy. The other one went to MIT. And I, between Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, I chose Carnegie Mellon. Stanford came later. <laughs> Stanford came later, yeah. So how old were you when you entered Carnegie Mellon? 
I was 17 when I entered Carnegie Mellon. Okay, so you weren't like terribly young, but you went in. No. But you finished early on. So yeah. what was your experience like? At, you know, obviously you were, percussionist is a good word because I think I am, I was and I, and I am still. But what personally attracted you to Carnegie Mellon? Because I, I know that they have a, an amazing robotics program. Were you already thinking about robotics and that? Or what was your entree? I was actually. So as part of my senior thesis, uh, I guess, I implemented a robotics arm programmed by Apple IIs uh, that, at the time. You know, that's, that's what I did. Other people did testing the weight of mercury in water or some such thing. And I, I instead demonstrated the ability of a, of a personal computer at that time to have a, a cheap robotic arm do its thing. So I, I wanted to do robotics at an early age. I just saw that somehow as the future. I, I had a, a mentorship program that I was fortunate to find myself into with a, an old-time engineer uh, at Boeing and uh, worked with him to be creating these projects and a kind of a customized course of study for someone at that age around AI and robotics. I think some brilliant, brilliant people go to Stanford, but at Carnegie Mellon, man, it is, it's actually more of a technical school in some sense. You're thrown into the deep end of some really practical work. And, and I, I was able to, at a very young age, participate in this project that at the time was distinguishing the characteristic of balance for a galloping robot and then a hopping robot, which at the time was just fantastic. And to have that opportunity at, as an undergrad would have been very, very difficult at a Stanford or MIT. So it was really hands-on, very practical. Yeah, yeah. And the, the student-faculty ratio just uh, facilitated that. And was artificial intelligence part of this discovery at the university as well, or did that come later? I don't know where I suddenly got the itch about artificial intelligence. You know, I, re I remember reading Alvin Toffler's book, Future Shock, and, you know, some combination of those other books at the time, this is the early 80s, that somehow just got me excited and somehow added clarity to that being the vision for me. You know, I, I remember some phrasing years, many, many years later to say that it's something to the essence of that whatever technology that is created before you turn 10 or 15 is just part of the background. Whatever technology that is invented between when you're 15 and 25 is something you think you can build a career on. Whatever is comes after you're 25 or 30 or so is against the law of nature. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, people don't want to learn new technology. And so it may, it may have just been a function of the time, just kind of uh, grateful, plus the very fortunate circumstances under which I was reared to have the time and, and the resources to have a computer at my disposal with some degree of regularity. That all just contributed to me being able to see, probably with more clarity than many others, that AI and robotics would be providing this next wave of opportunity. You know, facilitated by all those books, right? Facilitated by, you know, seeing in the popular press the lionization of, of Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and, and at the time, Mitch Kapoor. You know, that all just came together. Uh, you know, my, my first computer I had when I was 10 or so, I, I put together the ZX81 with a soldering iron, and I felt a certain freedom for it. That was my, I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. So you get out of school, and I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you on this. And then you start your professional career in finance? I like to say I dropped out of my PhD program before it was fashionable. I got <laughs> one of those calls that you couldn't refuse from a bank to work in London. And so that is what I did. 
Ah, okay. Well, that's attractive. I, I lived in London for three years as a reporter, so I can concur on that. So you leave the U.S. and you go to London for how long? Yeah, it was under a year. It was actually uh, really short. Yeah. So what was that transition like going from technical to finance, which you obviously you're using your comments with skills and thinking and everything, but was that an adjustment? I played a particular role. I was the math guy or numbers guy or technical guy on a roving team of three that went around the world advising countries on behalf of my, my employer on how to structure the country's finances. And so that was, uh, that was a particularly special type of engagement where I felt that a lot of my background could be uh, put to use in at least in my knowledge of kind of my instinctive knowledge of, of math and finance. Well, yeah, and it goes back to what you described earlier. It's like that th- organizing the city metro. I mean, you're bringing all the, the, you know, the tribe together to to solve these problems, right? Yeah. Which is pretty cool. So at Morgan Stanley, after that, then you went into the venture capital arena? Yeah, that was an epiphany. So, you know, the reason I really left the PhD program to go work in finance was that I had started a couple of companies while in school. So I I was fortunate enough to start a couple of companies and and, and making it nothing compared to what is able to be made today. But, you know, I was able to, as a young kid, buy my first Porsche, which is, you know, some sort of an accomplishment for a, a boy. At what age? How old were you when you did that? 18. So that was nice. Yeah. From a bicycle to a Porsche. That's pretty. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I was entrepreneurial and I started these companies and we were doing okay. But I thought, well, man, I am really young and I want to learn more. Where can I learn on somebody else's dime? That was always in the back of my mind. So that's why I was amenable to go working at these banks when they offered some degree of freedom, some degree of exposure that I might not have otherwise have gotten from an, uh, many other type of technical jobs at the time with far less risk than me just starting an, another company at the scale that I wanted to start it. So that's that's what precipitated that. But... In 1994, I then recruited to Morgan Stanley uh, back in New York. And I, there's another point where you're you're definitely catching me in my goosebumps moment where uh, somebody showed me the Mosaic browser. I mean, I was, everybody else thought it was a curiosity and they thought it was interesting. People were huddling around this screen to show each other the Mosaic browser. I just stopped and I thought, oh, Oh my God. I knew that that's what, where I had to go. I mean, I just knew that this was it. And I, I think I quit that job within a week. Like I just had to, talking to my girlfriend at the time, like, Hey, I think I'm going to leave New York. This is like, something just happened and I need to be somewhere else. And I looked at then where, where to go. Everything was, was happening in Silicon Valley. So I went just to talk to some friends about where who, who I should talk to out in Silicon Valley. And I looked at a startup. There was a startup that was just getting just getting started up in Seattle. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll talk to one startup and I'll talk to some friends in Silicon Valley. And so uh, that's what I did. I quit my job in a week and then I flew out and I just shuttled between those two cities, just talking to a couple of companies. And I think I I landed one of those in the in the following week and uh, and I just left. Where did you land? Which company? I left at a venture capital firm that no longer exists. We had a billion and a half under management, which at the time was big. You know, at the time that that was a nice number. And I was fortunate enough 
in my position. I, I did well. Uh, I was recognized as doing well, but I, I won't confuse genius with really what was a bull market. I mean, <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to find a couple of companies to invest in early stage. So you're Seattle, you go east, you go to London, you come back to the Valley. I mean, what was your first impressions of the Valley? It was an interesting dynamic in early years where it definitely felt more technically centric than it is today. I think the the trend then was people building technology, people actually building some of the fundamental infrastructure and then experimenting with other technology that would go on top. Today, we live in a very different world where much of what we uh, call technology companies are really those taking advantage of technology, but not really inventing it. But back then, it was it was a special time. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I enjoyed the people with whom I worked quite a bit, enjoyed the work quite a bit. I mean, venture has changed quite a lot, but it it has it had it had the particular dynamic of allowing a great deal of intellectual richness because you could be talking to very smart people in a range of subjects that uh, you knew had the possibility to to change the world. It was really uh, quite remarkable. So we got pitched Netflix back when they did CDs or DVDs. It wasn't my deal, but one of my partners did did Netflix. And that was fascinating. We, we literally had the DVDs in our partners meeting, checking it out, uh, evaluating whether or not this was a good, a good investment. We, we backed it with a fair amount of money. So they did well. So that was in the dot-com bubble era. Yeah, dot-com bubble, did yeah. Right. So were you working with robotics and AI companies in that era? You know, there were not a lot of, I'm just trying to reflect, there were not a lot of physical robotics companies, as I recall. And, you know, AI, you know, back then was still regarded as uh, uh, something of a disappointment because symbolic AI, which was all the rage back in the early 80s, had come to be, uh, is found to be limited because it didn't scale is what uh, how I would talk about it today. It didn't scale and the symbolic AI and expert systems were generally disappointments. And this was all pre-machine learning. So that really wasn't the thrust of the technology push back then. It was a lot, you know, a lot of e-commerce as you as you know, but I, I did a uh, I did a medical device company back then. I did a semiconductor company. I mean, it was it was all over the place. Yeah, I mean, that's about right. In that period, we were just getting heavy storage and getting on-ramp of the internet superhighway and and mosaic and, and that you described. And, and that was really going from the networking era to the digitally all-connected, all-the-time era, right? So you're part of all that. Then you go back to Carnegie. Yeah. Tell me about that. What was that that epiphany that says, I got to go back? Well, I, I, you know, a couple of things. You know, After... 9-11 and the dot-com bust just you know, six months before the world changed. There were venture firms in that subsequent year that did exactly zero deals. I don't know how they could justify their management fees to their investors, but they did exactly zero deals, not not working, essentially. So I, I looked at that time just about what I wanted to do with my life. I was fortunate enough to have made enough money to do whatever I wanted to do. If, so if I looked out at what could be my future. I, I had a dream to go back and complete my PhD. So that's what I started to do. I applied and got into Stanford. And then I got people that knew me at Carnegie Mellon, said, no, please come back to Carnegie Mellon and do it there. And I did something very, very silly. I did both for a time. So for about one year, 
I I was doing PhDs at both schools, doing any kind of intro uh, PhD work at both schools. You know, so it's whatever, just graduate school. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, well, I, I don't think many people did. <laughs> but you know, if you looked at the flight that was going to Pittsburgh from Silicon Valley, I was probably the only one on that flight doing you know, machine learning problem sets. <laughs> It was exceptionally difficult, I will tell you. Any one of those pro- pro- programs are, are, are hard, but that was that was very, very hard. You know, the funny thing about it is, as much as I say that that was hard to do it at both schools, the, the teachers were kind of interchangeable. The, the coursework was kind of interchangeable. So it was very much the same, the same in a certain way. My course of study at Stanford actually was mathematical statistics, and, and the course of study at Carnegie Mellon was, was graph theory uh, and machine learning. So that's why they were actually complementary. You couldn't say I was actually just doing the same thing, getting double credit, but they were definitely complementary. Uh, you know, Stanford uh, professors sometimes left one school to go for another, generally Carnegie Mellon to Stanford, not the other way around. So as a PhD student, though, you must have been making some money because you co-founded numerous companies. Yeah. So you did have revenue streams in there, which by itself is just like, wow, that's a lot to be juggling. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was crazy. Were any of them AI or deep learning, machine learning companies? Well, with a couple of very talented co-founders, we took some academic research to uh, securities trading, to equity markets. We looked at starting a, a hedge fund, a statistical arbitrage uh, hedge fund. So that is a rich expression of what we had learned and had a fantastic financial uh, future available to it. So that was the biggest deal, raised a fair amount of money for that hedge fund. So I think that's a good segue to a question I'm starting to ask you. You stated AI is often described as the economic engine of the future. So bridging the, the intelligence and the data and your knowledge of finance and obviously numbers kind of all came together with that description. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I really admire the people that are able to turn these insights uh, with a high degree of regularity into uh, short-term commercial opportunities. There are people uh, far better at me at this. I have done it as often as I can, as often as I can figure out. But one of the visions of the future that is really clear to me is the degree to which Data and really more to, more to the point, learning from data is the future that is required, not just available, but required of all companies. You know, it's often said that every company is a data company. It's not really just the data, it's that what you learn from the data and, and getting even more precise, it's in the data relationships. It's in the data relationships. So it's really an easy fact to be acquired that um, I'm as high as, as tall as I am, I have the eye color I do, I have hair that I do. Those are characteristics and facts. But the degree to which you could understand my behavior and the relationships of whatever facts you have about me to my behavior, those relationships, that is very valuable information that that companies really pay money to in order to then affect my behavior in various ways, whether they're trying to get me to eat another potato chip or fly on Delta Airlines with more frequency or, or, or apply for yet another American Express card like I need one. Those are uh, relationships, correlations, suggestions of behavior. Those sort of relationships are where the world exists. And the way to get there for companies 
is in the analytics, the algorithms, the data science, whatever you'd want to call it, that powers that data to make these business decisions. The findings behind that are really what the future businesses will be basing their valuation on. Yeah, and I, I think you know what's great about that is a lot of people think that artificial intelligence is just like, I don't know what to call it, like the more of the internet of things that are in people's homes and the Alexas and the series and those. And that does have some, but the amplification of what can be done with intelligence and the degree in what it can be done, right? Everyone's enamored with autonomous cars, but the, a lot of that technology and the learning of that has been in progress for some time. It's just the application of it is different, right? And more accessible. And I think that's where, you know, a question I have for you is, are we adapting or are we adopting? Yeah, I would like everyone to be comfortable enough with the the technology so that we can adopt it to our values, so it can actually reflect what I want, what we want in the world. You know, something about uh, automated vehicles is really important to emphasize, which is that it's taken a long time to get here. The, The aphorism that we learn in Silicon Valley is you don't confuse a clear vision with a short time horizon is is apt here. Everybody said, well, I can definitely see fully automated sofas driving down the freeway where I can just sit and read a book. Fine, I can see it too. It doesn't mean it's going to be here in 2024 or 30 or even 2050. There's a certain amount of of religion that, that I think really is attributed to that level of automation. You know, I often ask people when the first year was that automated cars were on the road, obeying stoplights and stop signs. When was the first year? You know, without putting, you you can think in your head what you think that that year might be and shout it out if you'd like, but I can tell you the answer. It wasn't 2002. It wasn't 1992. It was 1982 or 83, where this happened to have been in Pittsburgh, where a van, uh, quite a big van, mind you, but, you know, a a van drove down the road at five miles per hour, but it drove without a driver stopping at stop signs. That was the first automated car. You know, Mercedes around that time had a car that could drive down the, uh, the a freeway, but had to have white lines. This technology has been in, uh, around for quite some time. It's taken quite a while to get where we are. It's going to take quite a bit more development before it's anything close to that driving sofa. That's a way of addressing how this technology is going to be affecting our world. You know, on your point about Internet of Things and AI, I think that it's it's important to know that you know, big data is a, a term that I feel is now old. You know, we can put that aside. Everybody knows it, but it's kind of lost its meaning. We all know that data has exploded. 90% of all data is created in the last two years and all that. What is little known is that data sources have also exploded. They are also quadratically increasing. So you you mentioned the Internet of Things. That's a da- those are data sources, and so if you have the the breathtaking growth of data, and you simultaneously have a breathtaking growth of data sources, what you're left with is this challenge of data relationships. That's the future: is handling data, managing data relationships. And that's going to be indicative regardless of like market. So as it relates to business, as it relates to you know, enterprise business, banks, finance, military, governments, right? I mean, that's a pervasive problem. 
really everywhere. National security, to be sure, every government, every industry, from logistics to hospitality, from aerospace to finance, everywhere. So let's talk about how you took that knowledge, because it's very powerful, and all your prior experience and understanding of how Silicon Valley works and how you know tech and visionaries work. And, and you have this entree into the Obama administration. Yeah. How did that happen? Was that an invitation you just get in the mail and says? Yeah, that was a that was a call my wife said I have to take. Yeah, even though I deeply admire the people that that serve our federal government, I had to, I have many of the same biases that that other people might have about those very big bureaucracies. But at least at the level I was working at with the people that I saw, they were extremely impressive people, hardworking, smart, and and serving our country for not a lot of money. It's actually one of the corrections I would make is is probably tripling the pay for many of the people that I saw working. And the, the Secretary of the Navy with, with whom I became friendly, Ray Mabus, you know, he had two kids going to Harvard, but you know, he was earning only a little bit more as Secretary of the Navy, only a little bit more than what Harvard tuition is. <laughs> you know, he was not living uh, living well. Uh, it was a struggle. And it's just it, it's it, it's crazy relative to the, the alternatives he could get out in the commercial sphere. I was really fortunate for for that time. One of the things that I uh, didn't expect was the insights that that vantage point would afford me. It wasn't my really it wasn't my motivation. I I was just motivated really to to serve the country because it was a pay cut, a substantial pay cut. But my father, my brother had served in the military, and I I that wasn't uh, seemingly in the cards for me. You know, one of my best friends was a senior officer in the army. So I just I somehow was attracted to be working in the government in this particular position seemed very, very attractive, which it turned out to be. But the perspective that it gave me in looking across the executive branch about AI and robotics from how the transportation department views it to how the def- defense department views it, when you can imagine those needs are different, right? How they even define robotics is fascinatingly different because their use cases are different. That perspective gave me a very quick, visceral sense about where the blockages would be toward implementing our vision of the future in practical application. Were you getting involved in public policy and lobbying as well? Were you brought in as an expert? or I mean, what was kind of your your core structure? Yeah, so I was the my business card said machine intelligence and robotics in the White House. So I was the authority on AI during that time. The person that preceded me then went on to become the dean of engineering at UPenn. And I termed out with the administration and no one followed me <laughs> into, the, into, the, into 45, into the following administration. I work with a group colloquially known as the Science Advisory Group. And that, that group was a fraction of its size in the subsequent administration. So I, yeah, what we do in that part of the executive branch isn't isn't lobby the the legislators. We will speak on behalf of the president. We will really coordinate the rest of the, the executive branch. Uh, speak humbly on behalf of the president and coordinate the rest of the executive branch, being helpful however we can. 
often working to define the next generation of research. You know, where do we want to go with AI and robotics for the future? Some of the expressions that it took during my time there was a plan around artificial intelligence. What's a roadmap? What's the national roadmap for artificial intelligence? And some of that work continued, I'm happy to say, not in the same form, but an AI initiative specifically was created after my time. That's the right thing to be doing to, to help lead and be a resource for what artificial intelligence or what that domain of work would look like across the executive. And, that, you know, that's a bipartisan issue, right? Everybody wants the, the government to be more efficient in their use of these resources, their allocation of these resources and the focus of future work. Were you the first one to have that role? I think I might say it was the third there were other computer scientists during my time. There was another one that was an expert in computer security, for example. That's not my domain. That was his domain. He's not in AI and robotics. That's my domain. So if anybody had work to do around that, that's where I would play. And then what specifically, I mean, did you actually have meetings with Obama? Did you, or was it just the you would report back and his core people? I mean, did you actually have those one-to-one -one meetings? <laughs> right. The president and I have met, but, you know, that's a big staff. I mean, I think it's like on the order of a thousand or so people, maybe more, you know, that work in that executive office building adjacent to the, within the perimeter, but adjacent to the West Wing. So that's, that's a lot of people. The president and I were not, uh, we're, not we're also not beer buddies, <laughs> as, much as, as much as I, I respected him. So now then this leap to this next administration, I know that you wrote a letter recently to the current administration with some yeah. cautionary things. And so now you're advising, you're, you know, still playing that, that advisory role, but in a, a different thing about robotics, deep learning, data, all this massive data that can, I don't know, how, how many tons of data do we have? Is there a number to it now? So what's the, the justification of let, that letter, uh, not justification, but what was the purpose of that letter? And then break it down, it just what that really means for us now, because are there cautionary things that we all need to be aware of as it relates to robotics and AI? And because you have now decades of experience, right, and understanding both this, not just the, the visionaries and innovation, but also how it can be applied and how it can be misused. So what was your advice to the current administration? Yeah, I, I can first emphasize some of what you said. I want to be very humble that there are many, 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 many brilliant computer scientists, Kai-Fu Lee being uh, someone in the popular imagination, Andrew Ng in the popular imagination. These are brilliant computer scientists that you know, deserve the credit that they're given. I am in the fortunate position, however, of having what I think is a rare, if not unique, perspective of having worked around AI and robotics from the various perspectives of not just a researcher, which a lot of people have done better than me, and not just a business person, which a lot of people have done better than me, not just a venture capitalist, which a lot of people have done better than me, but also in policy. And a lot more people, you know, I didn't serve in the cabinet uh, or far from it. So a lot of people more senior than me. But that, that combination of experiences, I think, is extremely rare, if not unique. That gives me a special place to, I think, to speak about these recommendations. Because everybody has their biases. I would like to just disconnect as much as possible from whatever biases I think might be influencing my advice. But I think I have some things to say about how to write policy around this technology. That's that was the motivation behind that letter to the, the current administration. 
Are there any challenges that you see with artificial intelligence and robotics now that that the rest of us should be like, you know, cautiously bringing these and devices and platforms into our businesses and, and into our daily lives? I mean, what should we be wary of? I have many, many, many things to say about this. I, I'm going to try to be representing this as much as possible in my book. The, the book that I'm in the process of writing, and to my publisher's dismay, is probably more than a year out still, is going to be for the mass market. It's going to be for everyone, the goal of which is to bring people into the conversation. As Megan Smith said, one of the, one of the people with whom I had the good fortune of working, we need everybody on the field. This is a, a big deal. It's a national imperative, maybe even saying a Western civilization imperative, that everybody be involved for a variety of reasons. So we need everybody on the field. And that's the motivation behind me writing my book and really my continued engagement. I think I have a particular skill set that can be put to use in bringing people into the conversation. People's concern about AI, it can often take the form of something that's less helpful than the danger that's really in front of them. So the concern about driving with automated cars, displacing truck drivers, that will happen. But I suggest that that's not the biggest problem today. That's not the biggest mess for the next 10 to 20 years. I, I actually also think that truck driving, long haul truck driving, is actually going to become a more attractive job before it goes away, oddly perhaps counterintuitively. Yeah. I mean, California, specifically up and down the coast, right? Trucking is not going away. <laughs> it is not going away. Yeah. So anyway, that that's going to become more attractive before, before it goes away. But there are other dangers in AI that I think deserve our attention. You know, what what is taking in the popular imagination is the degree to which algorithms manipulate us. I think they they manipulate us in in much the same way as the the potato chip companies manipulate my body. Like they they know more about my physiology than I do. And you might say, well, it's under my control to have another potato chip. But I have to say, it's, it takes a, de a degree of of consciousness because I I have a hard time having just one potato chip. And I think Instagram is kind of the same way. You know, Instagram knows more about my psychology than I do, or at least has more control over my psychology than I do. I say Instagram is like the potato chips of the 21st century in that in that regard. Based on that, I mean, do you think artificial intelligence needs to be renamed? How artificial is it? I think it's a horrible name. No, no, really a horrible name. I think the European Union's attempt at regulation started with the definition, which was like literally laughable because it looked like my resume. Uh, it just it was a bucket list. Everything, everything. We'll just uh, or, or empty, empty the bucket of, of everything around AI and we'll just call that AI. It was insane. So they pulled it, rightly pulled it. And, and that's, a, that's a result of most of these policymakers being lawyers. So they can be well-meaning people, but I remember often when I worked in government that I would sit around a table, could be 10, 20, 30 people, I could be the only one raising my hand that had any sort of technical degree, even an undergrad degree, any sort of technical education. They're all lawyers, which is fine, except when it comes time to actually understand and write policy. Because if you don't actually understand these, these fundamental issues, you're going to think what's easy is hard and what is hard is easy. You're going to just be regulating the wrong thing. So I outline at a high level to the current administration what they could focus on for a policy around AI. But in October 2021, if we're specifically looking at Facebook algorithm, for example, 
let's talk about that. How do you actually regulate an algorithm? Lawyers have no idea. And if you talk to some of the people that are writing some of the current blather around AI and regulation, they'll say, well, we need a new paradigm. Great. Tell me exactly what that means. Well, we need to think about it differently. Great. Tell me exactly how that expresses itself. Uh, we need to regulate it. Okay, great. Where do you start? They have no idea. No idea. Really, no idea. What do you do to regulate it? There's a good idea of just giving more competition. Fair. That's a um, an opinion to which I, I have some degree of sympathy. But if you ultimately need to regulate an algorithm, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to first separate out the data model of the algorithm from the data. That's what you first need to do. And then you need to expose the data model. That's what you need to do. So that may be a little too technical, so we can work through an example of that. It's, I have gotten, the same way I get sucked into eating potato chips, I get sucked into flying Delta Airlines. So, you know, they have my number about manipulating my behavior. They do a very good job of manipulating my behavior to fly more Delta. That, the data model is maybe a round frequent flyer. So the data is like a rose in an Excel spreadsheet. The rows are data on Eric Daimler, the amount I fly, the class of service I get, the originating airport, the destination airports that I tend to go to, how many potato chips I eat on flight, whatever they, whatever sort of data they collect. That's the data. And the columns, the, the degree to which I defined those things, that's the beginning of the data model. And then it's the relationships between those columns that further defines the data model. So it's, it's how the mileage I flew, time plus the amount that I spent, added to the amount, to how frequently I do it or whatever they want to collect, that defines the data model. Making that transparent, that's how you regulate a data model. That's what needs to be exposed. There's no other way that is a practical matter to do it. You, you can just be looking at inputs, outputs, and that we do we do with FICO scores. So, so credit scores have a, have a certain data model to them. We don't require those to be uh, completely exposed, but, and those have a big influence over our life. So, so that's the other way you could potentially be regulating it, but really how you, that's, we're not regulating an algorithm in that sense. We're regulating something else. So if you wanna regulate an algorithm, separate the data, separate the data model, expose the data model fully in the actual relationships. No, I mean, that totally makes sense. So when do you think, I mean, your career, you've had this really robust career, but I just want to go back to that moment when, what was it, that it, when you got the call from the, the Obama administration or was it something while you were, you know, in that role that just said, you know, I've been chosen to kind of be this advocate and this voice for not just me, but for the rest of us. I mean, when was that? You know, I didn't have such highfalutin thoughts <laughs> when I chose when I chose to take the job. It just really sounded fun, kind of selfishly. You know, and I thought I could make a difference, sure, but I I didn't have that feeling. I'd say until I was there, President Obama said many things that I will remember. But one of the things he said is that if you walk into that building, and I'll just generally say the complex, if you walk into that complex and it doesn't move you, you know, you're in the wrong job. So I can say every time I was there and just walking around, walking around that area, although although that part of Washington, D.C. kind of resembles an office park, it's not terribly, it's not the charming part of Washington, it was moving. And so I think something in that certainly gives gave me a sense of of the difference to be made and it, it made it more clear about what I could do. You know, I've been very fortunate in in my life. I chose the right parents uh, <laughs> and I had a I, I had a, a lot of good opportunities. 
And so I am in a, in a position to use what I've learned and the experiences I've had to influence this technology how I can, I think, to, to help shape it. Because, because, and this is the second thing that, that President Obama said, really big deal. So in the Oval Office, there was this rug, a, a oval, oval-shaped rug, and around the outside of it is inscribed saying, it's often credited to Martin Luther King, there's some dispute about that, but we'll, we'll say it's from him. It says, the long arc of history bends towards justice. And then and President Obama would, would remind us verbally, not without our work or not without our support. It doesn't. It's not, it doesn't happen accidentally. It happens with our work. With our work, the long arc of history bends towards justice. Not inevitable, but it will with our work. That's what I take about AI. No, that's really powerful. You know, AI can either be, it can be that utopia that we dream of. And it can certainly be the dystopia of Hollywood's imagination, but it's with our involvement that we as a society determine where on that spectrum this life-saving technology finds its expression. And it's in there that I feel that I can be uh, providing the greatest value during my lifetime. That was Eric Daimler. After leaving his White House job, Eric took some time plotting his next move before deciding to go right back where he knew he belonged, launching another startup. In 2018, he co-founded Connexus, a company that leverages AI to better organize and manage enterprise data and still serves as a CEO today. Like many experts in the area of AI and robotics, often Eric spends as much time talking about what AI can do as much as he does reassuring people what it can't. He has started to write and speak more about the future of AI and believes we should resist thinking of it as a cure-all. As he says, just because artificial intelligence can solve problems doesn't mean that every problem will be solved with algorithms. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs. 